this week at Hope Point. So if you were an Old Testament worshiper, you would bring a goat from your flock, sacrifice it, the priest would combine it with incense, and on the altar, the aroma would rise to God, and he would be pleased because that was the love from your heart that he was smelling. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, fellow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Richard speaks to us from God's holy word. I'm sure that many of you have not heard the word sedate phobia. It was new to me this week when I ran across it. It's the fear of silence, specifically the silence that occurs in conversations. There's a university study in Netherlands that said that Americans are probably the most confident or the most um, frightened when there's a delayed pause in, in conversations. About five seconds is all we can handle. So I think I have sedate phobia because I find myself when I'm talking with somebody, if it grows silent, I'll just start asking them anything. Like, hey, do you remember when you were born? What was that like? Just scared of silence. There's a, a very special room at the Microsoft headquarters in Richmond, Virginia. It's called the anechoic chamber. Anechoic means without echo. Uh, it costs a million and a half dollars to build over two years. It's deemed the quietest place in the world, completely. No sounds from the outside. If you stay in it for two minutes, you can begin to hear your heart beat. If you stay in it five minutes, you can hear blood flowing through your veins. They use it to test all of their listening gadgets and all of that. But before Microsoft ever invented that room, there was another room that was marked by unusual silence and brings us to our current place of study in Revelation chapter 8. When the angel opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumbling, flashings of lightning and an earthquake. If you're new to Hope Point and I, we're just thrilled if this it would be your first Sunday. You've walked into our study of the book of Revelation in which we began last November. So starting chapter eight puts us a little bit more than a third of the way through the book, which for my uh, history here, it's, I'm pretty happy. That's pretty good speed for me. The part of the Bible that we're focusing on now is Revelation chapter eight. Let me tell you how the book the book sort of is easy in its, in its basic outline. Chapter one and two are large visions of God. Chapter one shows us the beauty of Jesus Christ now that he's in heaven, no longer confined to the earthly body of a man, but his infinite size in heaven. That's chapter one. Chapter 21 uh, and 22 describes the beauty of heaven itself, uh, where we all want to go and will go, those of us who knew, know the God of the Christ of chapter one. Well, in between that, these bookends are 
primarily chapters of judgment, chapters 4 through 19. And those judgments are divided up into three sections. They're called the judgments of the seals, the judgments of the trumpets, and the judgments of the bowls. Because each one of them had, like with the seals, seven times a scroll had to be unsealed or untied. The trumpets, there were seven times a trumpet sounded and God gave dished out judgment on the earth and seven times God dumped bowls of wrath on on the planet. And so when you come to chapter eight, you you really come to um, the end of of the first set of judgments. You're at the end of all these seals that were untied from this scroll. And it is the untying of the seventh seal that leads us into this second set of judgments called the the trumpets. But we're really not expecting what happens when we untie the seventh seal because what we get there is silence. When he opened the seventh seal in preparation for the trumpets judgments, there was silence. Well, this doesn't really make any sense to what we would expect to happen at this point in the book. Because in chapter 6, we saw wars, famine, earthquakes, uh, disease, death, martyrdom. And at the end of chapter 6, we saw the return of Christ. We saw cataclysmic global judgment on the great and the small, kings and those who worked for them. And it was over. And then when you come to chapter 7, We come to one of our favorite chapters because we saw the reward of all those who trusted Christ. They're in the bliss of heaven. They're enjoying unspeakable peace. Their praises are are crazy, wonderful. It's just endless satisfaction. And so when you read chapter seven, you're sort of saying, gosh, we're here at the end. So you would think chapter eight is gonna be, well, tell us more about heaven. And then all of a sudden there's silence. It's almost like you go to a concert and you've got all these people and they're just just absolutely rocking it out and higher and higher and higher. This expectation of heaven, heaven, heaven. And then nothing. You say, that's not how I thought the concert would end. I didn't think a big concert would end with silence. But the more that you get used to the book of Revelation, we're sort of getting used to this together, you realize that a lot of times the author will have a look back, a flashback. And that's what he's doing in chapter eight. This, all of the trumpets of, of chapter eight, the judgments, they really occur at the same time that the first set of judgments, the seals occurred in chapter six. And so what happens in this silence This moment of silence in chapter 8 is when the angels of God all of a sudden see all of these judgments in chapter 6 and chapter 8 and then we see later in chapter 11. When the angels begin to see how God is going to release his fury on the earth, they just grow silent. So chapter 8 is really right before the return of of Christ and the silence that comes when you see the judgment of God. It's amazing things that silence us in this world. I mean, if you've been around long enough, there have been things that just silenced you. We were all silenced with the sorrow of 9-11. The towers fall. You're watching TV 
You see nothing. Or it could be the joy of watching water pour over Niagara Falls. You don't know what to say. You just marvel at greatness. Now that, that's, what, that's what happens when you know that you're in the presence of greatness. You just, sometimes there, there is no word. Lisa, I told you last week that, that um, <clears throat> in June uh, 29th, Lisa, Lisa turned 60. And so you probably thought I was cheap last week when I said I bought her some balloons and an $11 cake from Costco. I did better than that. I got her tickets to see James Taylor in Columbia. Well, listen, you don't know how long I've been waiting to see James Taylor in concert. Um, When I was um, a junior, before my junior year at Clemson, I worked in a ministry in Anaheim, California. I drove my 1978 Civic from South Carolina to California. And all I had, I had three cassette tapes to take me on that 2,500 mile journey. And that was, I had um, the Beach Boys. (laughs) I had Elvis's 1969 return to Vegas. And I had James Taylor. So I've been really wanting to see James Taylor. At least I've been wanting to see James Taylor in concert for for 40 years, and so there we are in the, in the um, Colonial Life Coliseum in, um, in Columbia two weeks ago. And so he sings three or four songs. None of them were overly familiar because he's just sort of getting into his groove thing. And so all of a sudden, somebody, a girl, yells out from the floor. I think she possibly had stopped off at a bar a couple hours before the concert. See, Caroline, on your mind! Like it's his number one song. So he said, he stopped, didn't miss a cue, said, hey, thank you. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. I might have forgotten to sing Carolina. (laughs) My mind. And I make the point because she was talking when she should have been quiet. This was his night. He's the great one musically among us. And she had this undue self-confidence to tell him what he should sing next. I remember the first time I saw the Taj Mahal in Agra, India. It just was quiet. I remember many of you have seen the Grand Canyon and you just stand there and you just, like, you know, the thing you don't say when you're sitting there going, it's a big ditch. you just quiet. Because there are no human words that can describe divine glory. This is the problem with preaching. I'm trying to talk about the eternal glory of God every week. All I've got is human words, and therefore you're always, in some sense, missing missing the mark. But when you encounter the Almighty, when you truly encounter God, there will be moments in your life where you're just quiet. Because you see his greatness in your smallness. We sort of see this in the book of Job. Job was the best dude who's ever lived. Maybe Apostle Paul, the New Testament. We don't need to compete. Job was the man in terms of loving God. Well, in the midst of him loving God, catastrophe came, took the lives of... Listen, he so loved his kids, he prayed for them every morning for sins that they may forget to confess This catastrophe comes, wipes out his children. 
his health, his business. Only person that's left is his wife, which she was not a really major, she was not a major cheerleader of encouragement of trusting God. So the whole book is really about Job asking life's ultimate question, how can I pursue you with all of this devotion and it lead to evil invading my life and house? And really, if you're being honest with the book of Job, he basically tells God, you got this wrong this time. I mean, he doesn't say it, but he's thinking it, just like you are in your life. Well, you know, you do that. I do that. This is not right. This is too much. And so then God lets Job sort of hash this out all the book. And then in chapter 38, God says, if you want to apply for my job that I do every single day, answer these questions. And so he says, Job 38, 12, have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Job, when everything's dark at night, do you know how to turn on the switch and make the east coast light up? Then God asked him, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? I mean, I was in my yard all day yesterday. I would have loved some rain. I was hot, I was sweaty. It was torturous. And then all of a sudden, God decides today it's gonna rain. I can't do that. I can't make it rain. I can't make it stop raining. In the book of Job, God asked him all sorts of questions. I, I love these. He asked him later on, a couple chapters later, he said, do you know how to put wings on birds so they can fly? Do you know how to tie sinews and muscles and ligaments to the bone of a horse's leg so that it can run? And after all of these questions, Job finally says, verse, Job 40, verse 3, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I'll put my hand over my mouth. I mean, Job's heart was still breaking. He still was dealing with loss, but he said, God, you're so wise. You're so beautiful. Surely I can trust you to manage my life and the world because you do know what you're doing. You're so great, I'm just gonna not talk for a second and just behold you. The moment that he sees and remembers the knowledge of God, he realizes that he does not have the right to put God on trial. The brilliant pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and British pastor used to say this, how do you know that whether a man is a Christian? And the answer is that his mouth is shut. Lisa was looking over my slides today to make sure I didn't have massive misspellings, which is frequent. So she said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, I'll just rephrase it. If it's lost on you, then maybe lost on them. If you have never seen anything about God that compels you to be silent and just worship him for his greatness and your smallness, you've never seen God. You know, when you look at Christ on the cross, son of God, Son of God, it's like your child. Son of God, nailed to a cross, suffering 
brutal death, inconceivably the author of life dying so that in that suffering our sins could be absorbed into his body that we might escape the fires of eternal hell. That demands silence. Just awe. Or maybe the words, Christ be praised. But not a lot of small, meaningless chatter. It's amazing how puny as the God of our foolish culture who will not shut up as they ignorantly boast of their knowledge of what is right and wrong. They have no knowledge of God. They've never seen his glory. They don't sit before him, read his word, hear him, his word preached in church, sing praises, and then they speak as if they are the press secretary for God. You see it on social media, you see it on mainstream, you see it they know nothing of God's glory and then they almost speak in terms of God is obligated to give an answer to us. They have no firsthand knowledge of the Almighty and yet they speak for him. They've never considered the wonder of our body with its 100 trillion cells. All talking to each other so that I can do this right now. I mean, I thought of it, did it. Just thousands, thousands of commands given in less than nanoseconds from brain to nerves to hand to 100 trillion cells all communicating with each other. And then the marvel that Jesus Christ, the infinite one, larger than the universe, would squeeze into this human body that he might be able to relate to all the pressures and temptations and sorrows of your life. Coming not as a king, but as a poor carpenter inside that body. And our world, sitting around, no knowledge of this, talking like a jabbering 18-month-old as if they can represent God in speech. It should be silent. We should all be silent before the holy God and just say, God be praised. So here in Revelation chapter 8, you see that the angels are so mesmerized by what they see of God, and they basically see two things. They see the judgment of God about to be poured out on the earth, and then they see God rescuing his church through 21 centuries of persecution and hardship and they see his church is going to make it to heaven and all evil will be judged and a hundred million angels that were just praising God earlier one chapter earlier all of a sudden they're silent because they see the judgment of God and it's so horrible the Bible speaks of this Habakkuk 2 the Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth be silent before him Zephaniah chapter 1 I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the Lord when I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth declares the Lord be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near I'm amazed when I when I watch or go to I grew up in Augusta so I got to go to the Augusta National to the Masters quite a bit and and I'm just amazed when you're gathered around hole number 16. It's about 175-yard par three, all carry over water. And you see these 10 or 15,000 people on the hillside and surrounding this green, and this guy is putting, and all thousands of those people are quiet. 
because they understand the, the importance of this thing, golf-wise, that's about to happen. And that's what you see in, in the book of Revelation, a hundred million angels, quiet, out of reverence for the catastrophic judgment of God that's about to fall on the earth. And that he's gonna, and God's gonna save a church out of that. You see, many people say, why does, why does John call it a half hour? It was silent for a half hour. Well, there's been lots of ink spilled on that one. I'll spill some more. I think it's just a way to say it's a prelude to the hour. The book of Revelation talks about the judgment of God, that he's, it's gonna be so fast when it happens. Well, I'll just let you read Revelation chapter 18. Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. So I think he uses a half hour just to say it. the one hour of judgment that's going to destroy the earth is, is coming and we're gonna contemplate on that for a half hour. But after the half hour of silence, it's amazing. Things begin to happen. Things begin to move in heaven. And I saw the angels, the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them, which we were gonna look at next week, but not this week. We're gonna look at the seven trumpets of judgment that are coming in chapter eight. But what I want to look at this week is why, what happened in heaven that calls God to decide right now, I'm gonna release my judgment on earth and the end of the world is over. What made him do that then? That's answered at the first part of this chapter. Another angel who had a golden incense came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And what we're gonna see in these five verses or the remaining three, four, five, three, why God decided to judge the world when he did was based on the prayers of his church. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings, lightning, and an earthquake. So you have seven angels ready to sound seven trumpets. And before they are released, an angel in response to the church's praying hurls judgment to the earth and here in this chapter, our prayer is compared to incense. I don't know how you feel about incense. I'm not a fan. I smelled it a lot in college. I think it was covering up some improper things that were being smoked on our hall. I've been to India 12 times and I feel like the whole nation is burning with incense. I come home, my suitcase smells like incense, my clothes, my teeth. So I'm not a fan of incense. I go to the convenience stores sometimes that are run by precious Indian families here in the States and the smell of that incense takes me all the way back to many trips there. So maybe incense does not strike something in your, in your, 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 your psyche of something that's wonderful to smell. Maybe, listen, before K-Cups came, Keurig, coffee came, this is how it worked a 
for the majority of our marriage, I would go to the store, buy a can of coffee and open it with a can opener, but I was not allowed to peel back the plastic and begin using it till I found Lisa wherever she was in the house and opened the coffee so she could sniff because that was just a delight to her. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's not coffee to you that creates this aromatic pleasure. Maybe, maybe you're like me and you just like to go to Costco and stand in the tire section. <laughs> I mean, I feel sometimes that the, that, that the people, the employees who work there are worried that this guy comes every week and doesn't buy any tires. <laughs> Maybe for you, the smell that just does it for you is down the road a little bit when you go in and see the hot donut sign and that, that dough and that sugar. So, but whatever it is, God wants you to picture your prayers as having that effect on him, how pleased he is when your words arrive in heaven, that it is a joy in his nostrils to hear you talk and sing. We see this early on in the Bible when sacrifices were made and God said, these sacrifices are bringing pleasure to me. Leviticus 16, this is how Aaron the priest is to enter the most holy place. That was their sanctuary, their, their church. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. That's Leviticus 16. That's sort of his job. But earlier in the book, they said, this is what happens when he comes in. Leviticus 2.2, the priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar of food offering and aroma pleasing to the Lord. So if you were an Old Testament worshiper, you would bring a goat from your flock, sacrifice it. The priest would combine it with incense and on the altar, the aroma would rise to God and he would be pleased because that was the love from your heart that he was smelling. Just hence the title of my sermon, Prayer Smells Good to God. Get that based on Leviticus 16 and Revelation chapter 8. I think the psalmist was thinking about this when he said, may my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So as I looked at this chapter this week, I think there's a relationship between coming to God and praying, but that praying be, com be combined with our sacrificing. And the two together form incense to the Lord. Let me say it like this in case I didn't explain that well. The effectiveness of our prayers is related to the sacrifice of our lives. Sacrifice, prayer, on the altar, God is pleased. We saw that the last time we saw this altar in Revelation was chapter six, and we definitely saw the correlation between God being pleased and people sacrificing themselves for his purposes. Revelation six, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, there's that altar again, same in chapter eight, the souls of those who had been slain, killed because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained for Jesus. They called out in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth. And if you remember when we were there in that chapter, as soon as these people finished praying, God released 
cataclysmic judgment on the earth in response to the prayers of those who had sacrificed their life for his purposes. So I'm still making the case that the prayer that smells good to God is the prayer that's combined when our lives are sacrificed also as well for the purposes of our, our king. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer. Look at the relationship between prayer and what God does. He filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth and there came peals of thunder, rumbling flashings of lightning and, and an earthquake. These people are praying for the return of Christ. They're praying for the final judgment of God to come on the earth, and it does. Go back and read Revelation 8. Just read it together, one through five. They're praying. Their prayers are like incense to God. He's delighted in what they're asking, and what they're asking is the same thing that the people ask by the altar in Revelation chapter six. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Judge evil. Reward righteousness. You say, well, I've never prayed like that. I've never prayed, God, come, judge evil. Come, destroy wickedness. May holiness and purity abound. Listen, it, when you don't pray like that, when you don't pray these militant prayers of come, Lord, come rescue your church, destroy evil, it's probably because your life is surrounded but very little, but nothing but comfort. You tend not to pray wild, come on God, prayers for the weak. You don't pray for the weak when all your life is surrounded by luxury and wealth and comfort and you have the power in yourself to provide for your own needs. But when you're taking a stand for Christ and the village surrounds you and stones you and you suffer, you may die, your family has to leave because of Christ, you begin to pray more and more, God, help the weak. I know that every one of you in the past three or four weeks certainly has been looking at the great tension that's in our country right now because of the you know, certainly the Supreme Court, you know, making a decision that, that they as our, as that branch of government do not have the right to, did not have the right to um, authorize the taking of lives of babies. So, that, so they said, we're not, we should have never done it 50 years ago. We shouldn't have done it. So they said, we're not, we're not going to authorize that. You settle it in the states. Settle it with the people, but a court, the court of the land is not going to sanction the killing of children. So obviously you've seen the tension. It's amazing that I've never seen this much anger in the nation over whether or not children live. It just blows me away that this is the thing that would now divide the nation, the lives of children. This, I, I, so I was watching the protesters a few weeks ago and I saw this woman along with the protesters, and she's, you know, I don't know, that seven months, eight months pregnant, maybe more, I don't know. I don't know what, 
But inside her precious stomach, she, or on top of the skin of her stomach, she wrote, not yet a human. She's obviously uh, advocating for you know, pro-choice, pro-death position. Now, what she should have written there is, and that's not correct, not yet a human. What she should have written is, human not yet born. Now, that's not caustic on my part. That's not, that's just a truth. A human is in there, just not yet born. But that's incorrect, not yet a human. Now, here's how I know that. I, I don't want to brag in front of you about my knowledge of science. But... I saw it firsthand, I saw it happen. When my daughter got pregnant, we had this little sonogram, I don't know how old he is there, but you know, we loved it, we couldn't decide, he's an astronaut, gingerbread man. <laughs> but here's what happens. When you leave that alone, when you leave that alone, this is what happens. He came to our house last week and watered our flowers. And he's the same guy as that. So that's why I say what's written on her stomach is not accurate. Because he was a human. And now he's, now he's born. So I don't know what, what happened to the, the, the baby in that mother's womb that was protesting. You know, but I want to tell you, if, if you've never felt a sense of need to pray, God, the God of justice, come and act on behalf of the weak, I'm, I want to let you know that little baby in her womb is counting on your prayers, begging you to pray. And what I love is, I'm, you know, I can't say I had any part of this, like this 50-year journey with Roe v. Wade. It's it's there, but I know people that have really been praying 50 years, God, please show mercy to the land, to the children. Please, God, come and change, change that, that law. So I want to just tell you, strong praying, praying that God would come down and do something mighty and powerful in the land when you know how weak you are. This, these are good kind of prayers that we see in Revelation. You see it, at, I don't have it on the screen, but at the end of Acts chapter four, the church was persecuted, told not to preach anymore, threaten their lives, and so the apostles gather with the church just like this right here, and they said, oh God, would you come and do something mighty because... All of culture is turning against us. Would you give us the ability to have the power to keep faithful? And the Bible says when they prayed in Acts chapter 4, the room in which they were gathered shook physically when the power of God fell. That's good kind of praying. God, bring justice. Bring power. Because we're weak, God. We're weak and we need, we need help. You know what I love about this, this, um, this passage in Revelation? You know what I love most about it? I just lo I love two things about it. Number one, how much our prayers mean to God that he would say it's like inhaling the best smell in the world. Incense, donuts, whatever. But I, I don't want to speak derogatory of such a great passage. I just, I just love your words. 
So that's what I love. Our words are pleasing to the Lord. And then I love it, the fact that our words are effective. I know you're tired of, or tired of run this over and over again. Effective. When the church prayed, God began his judgment on the world, on evil. I mean, I know people all the time that cannot grasp this in their head, and I'm a big sovereignty of God guy and love the doctrines of grace and election, but those never interfere in my thinking with the work of the church in prayer because God has ordained a lot of things in this world that are going to happen, but he also ordained that they will not happen before God's people pray. You've got to get both of those together. It doesn't matter what God's ordained. You can't figure out this. Because I know some people just say, well, if God is sovereign, he knows the future, he's in the future, and God's going to do what God's going to do, and Kesara, what's going to happen is going to happen. No, that's not how the Bible presents it. God has ordained mighty things in the future, and he's ordained that those things will not happen until God's people pray. Both of them are ordained. So to abandon prayer is to forfeit the privilege of working with God as he, as he executes his plans on earth. When we pray, God's arm moves. You say, well, would his arm have moved anyway? No, because he ordained my arm will not move until you pray. Don't forfeit your privilege of praying. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I'm trying to challenge you or challenge us, but I'm embarrassed about how, when I look at all the things I can give up in a day and, you know, and, and I get to justify by saying, God, I'm serving you. You know, I'm serving you. I can, you know, it's your fault. I got too much to do. I can't pray well today. My goodness. And listen, this is how it works with me. I sort of, this is how I, you know, words are important to me. So this is a, my little metaphors I use. That my job in life, I call, my calling on life, is to dig down in the scripture and to unearth diamonds so you could see the beauty and power of God on earth, I mean, beauty on Sunday and love him. So I, I'm looking for beautiful, powerful diamonds and so I got my little shovel, study, 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 shovel, shovel, shovel. And God comes to me and says, hey, why don't you put your shovel down and tell me what you want for this church, what you want for this community, what you want for the nations. Put your shovel down and while you're praying with me, Instead of you digging two feet down, let me dig 10 miles down to find more beautiful diamonds and more powerful diamonds for the people of my church. Let me do the digging while you ask me to do the digging. So here's what you got to decide in life. Are you going to be content with what you can dig up two or three feet down? Or are you going to lay your working down, your worrying, your fretting, and ask God, dig in places I didn't even know were imaginable. That's what prayer is. Prayer is putting the shovel down and trusting God will do the digging while you do the praying. 
So as you wake up tomorrow morning, I want you to pray for two things. Number one, I want you to pray that God would pour out his power upon the church, that we would be uh, faithful and fruitful until Christ does return. I mean, we're suffering. There's suffering people in here. I've already looked at your eyes. I know what you're being through, what you're going through. Yeah. So pray tomorrow morning. God, pour out your power that your church would be faithful and fruitful. Then I want you to pray tomorrow morning. Come, Lord Jesus, come and ask God tomorrow, would Christ return today? If you're not praying for the return of Christ, you're not praying. They prayed like that in the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Now, it was sort of a joke when we were, everybody who's ever been dating said, I want you to come, Lord, but after my honeymoon. I mean, we've, we've all got things in life. Let me do this. But we're sort of stuck there as a society, a Christian society. Like, we don't want him to come yet. Because heaven doesn't thrill us. Earth does. But for many believers around the world, they're counting on you to pray with them and for them. They, they really could really use Jesus to come in about two minutes. It is so hard on them. Ronnie and I have traveled so many times in places to India. It's amazing. These are some of the storage boxes of our children in, at our orphanage in, in uh, Chennai. And so, you know, we have about maybe 40 on campus now and... and uh, in there and so but each child their entire possessions are, are in one of those boxes so of the 40 40 kids 40 boxes that's what they own so they would love it for Jesus to come back but when your box that you owns in life looks like this say no I don't think so I want that I don't want Jesus to come in in that. But when you begin to look at what the world is experiencing, you should pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And for God to do that, it means the world's got to be ready, which means the last person in the last village in the last nation has to be reached, that the gospel has to be preached. As Ronnie goes out, from this church through Frontline Ministries to help churches reach the last person in the last village. And when that last person is reached, he comes back. So when you're praying for the return of Christ, you're also praying for many more missionaries to be sent out so that can happen. But why would we not want the Lord Jesus Christ to return? Think about this. When he returns, all diseases are cured. All hospitals are closed. All crime is abolished. When he returns, perfect justice will be handed out to all the abusers of history. When Jesus returns, all persecuted Christians will reign with God forever in paradise. When he returns, all believers will be reunited with those that they have lost in this life and those that they love with all their hearts and they're reunited. They'll be reunited before the throne of God. And when Jesus Christ returns, every square inch of this earth will be incinerated with fire and will be replaced by a new earth, flawless and infinitely full of satisfaction and joy. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.